The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss what we know about the continuing Ukrainian counteroffensive in the South, and we look at the life and legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev, former president of the Soviet Union, who died yesterday, aged 91. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 31st of August, day 189. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and Dan Kipuro, senior reporter and history correspondent. Late on Tuesday evening, the news broke that Mikhail Gorbachev, the former president of the Soviet Union, whose glasnost reforms brought about the end of the Cold War, had died. Gorbachev was born into a Russian peasant family on the 2nd of March 1931 in the North Caucasus. Through his life, he rose through the ranks and became General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1985 and was voted into the newly created Executive Presidency in May 1989. Gorbachev's rule saw the end of the Soviet Union, something Vladimir Putin later described as a major geopolitical disaster. I asked Roland, Dan and Francis for their thoughts and analysis on Gorbachev's legacy and how his actions shaped modern Russia and its relationship with Ukraine and the world. I started off by asking Roland for the latest updates from the war zone. Right, well, the um, the great big Kherson offensive is as shrouded in mystery as, um, as it has been for the past few days. Ukrainians have a very strict security, uh, information security policy in place. So I'm afraid to say the upshot of what I'm about to say is I cannot confirm it um, and neither can any other major news agency. The Ukrainians saying they have had some successes in three areas in the attack on uh, this salient in this Russian held salient in Kherson. The Russian Defense Ministry says Ukraine's attempts have failed um, and they've suffered heavy losses um, in equipment and men. We are seeing, you know, Bits and pieces, but but less than you have seen from previous battles emerging on social media, kind of um, more uh, footage of explosions, um, ammo dumps going up overnight, um, uh, smoke rising in the distance from what some people say is um, either the Novokharkov uh, bridge or the, the Antonovsky bridge in, in Kherson. Um, but I'm afraid um, this offensive, its progress, we're going to be waiting, I think, um, to really see how well it's going. Um, I would say um, on the telegram, on the kind of the kind of pro-Russian uh, voices that who generally are reliable, uh, generally, um, I would say um, there is an acknowledgement that Ukrainians are making some progress. Um, there's definitely um, claims on there that the Russians are holding back in some areas. Um, but at the moment, at the moment, the general sense is some Ukrainian progress. We don't know how much further it's going to do. So away, away from the actual fighting, um, the mission from the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, left Kiev this morning um, 
on its mission to inspect a Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. They've just arrived in Zaporizhia. I just saw it announced just before we um, started speaking. So they're in Zaporizhia. That's actually, you in peacetime, it's a two-hour drive um, around a bend in the river to the nuclear power plant. Um, uh, the, the front line lies between them and the nuclear power plant, um, which means they're going to need assurances from the Russians to be able to cross from the Ukrainian side. Um, the IAEA chief, Rafael Grossi, says, look, we've spoken to both sides. We've got the security assurances. This should be happening. Um, we will see whether they get there. There's been shelling overnight um, in the vicinity of the power plant. Um, the town next door to it, Energodar, um, was hit overnight. The Ukrainian military... Um, uh, or the administration in Nikopol, which is the town right across the river, um, opposite the plant, which is Ukrainian-held. Um, they're saying the Russian forces have been shelling the plant or near it to blame the Ukrainians, to give the IE that impression. The Russians, of course, say the opposite. Um, so the same kind of place there. So that's, that's more or less where we are at the moment. Thanks uh, very much for that, Roland. Francis, do you want to come in and, uh, and add to any of that? Well, just of those stories, I think the most interesting one, um, f- further to the story of what's happening in, in Curzon, uh, is this halting of gas supplies completely along Nord Stream 1, which is the pipeline that Roland was just talking about. This obviously intensifies the economic battle between Moscow and Brussels. As Roland said, the outage is supposedly for maintenance, though, of course, this has been vigorously denied by those who are actually in the know on these matters. And it's just, I think, another example of as as pressure is mounting on Russia in this war, they're deploying every weapon at their disposal, of which energy is now one of the most potent. And so in expect this story to, to rumble on, One interesting element of this is we've spoken a lot on the podcast about Germany's role. And indeed, of course, this is a concern for Germany, who are one of the most reliant powers in Europe on Russian gas, particularly. They've actually done a very good job of stockpiling energy in recent months. And indeed, there is some talk that actually, as things stand, Germany may well be in a much stronger position on energy entering winter than was previously expected. So I think watch this space in the coming week, fortnight or so, very closely, because as things are increasing on the military side in Ukraine, I think we can expect the energy front here to become particularly acute with lots of developments taking place, particularly, of course, as the weather starts to get a bit cooler. Thank you uh, very much for that, Francis. If there's nothing more to say from Roland and Francis, let's move uh, to the news we got yesterday that Mikhail Gorbachev, the former, the, the last leader of the Soviet Union, died at the age of 91. I, I brought you three together to talk about this. And what I want to get from this discussion is not just a, a sense of who he was, uh, what he did and why he matters, but to understand how he changed modern Russia. Uh, to understand Putin's relationship to him and to the Russia he created, and also to understand how what Gorbachev did affected Ukraine and impact, uh, impacted Ukrainian independence. Because I think he's, he's a figure at the heart of uh, the history of modern Russia and modern Ukraine, and to understand his life and how he changed that is very important. So I don't know who would like to speak first, so uh, please, please just go for it. Well, I'll happily start us off. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation in, in recent hours about this idea of Gorbachev as a hero or a villain. And really, I think the notion of a hero and villain in history more often belongs in comic books, frankly, rather than in history itself. He is a very complicated figure. 
on the one hand, his legacy is the collapse of the Soviet Union, something, of course, to be celebrated and, and, and was lauded and still is across the West. Though, of course, he never intended that to happen. He worked with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher to slash nuclear arsenals around the world. He gave many Russians their first taste of freedom after decades behind the Iron Curtain. Yet, in course, in Russia, he's remembered there as the man who lost the Soviet empire. And indeed, he's been very heavily criticised there today, and particularly in recent years, under, as Putin's control has increased. I think something that can be said about Gorbachev is, if you look at interviews that he was saying in around sort of 2010s, early 2010s, I think he sensed what Putin was going to become. He said he'd initially supported him as his first term as president, um, but then that the relations between them had soured. He decried the new laws passed by Putin as an attack on the rights of citizens. And he said that um, unless Putin sort of changed his style, uh, he would become afraid of his own people. And he also said that the inner circle was full of, quote, thieves and corrupt officials. So he didn't mince his words when it came to what the state that, that Putin was building. However, on the other hand, I think you have to acknowledge the fact that Gorbachev defended Putin's annexation of Ukraine's uh, Crimean Peninsula. Uh, his statements led to Ukraine, of course, to ban him from entering the country at that time. As leader, he massacred protesters in Lithuania and the Baltic states. He was, let's not forget, still a committed communist. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I apologise to regular listeners who've heard me make this point before. But as I say, I think there's often a misunderstanding about the implosion of the Soviet Union. Often it's talked about in terms of this, there being immense pressure put on the Soviet Union from the West that made it economically impossible for them to compete and then eventually it just imploded. Uh, really what happened is, is that the Soviet economic system and the military system particularly was still very powerful in the late 1980s, early 1990s. If they had sought to try and stop what was happening with the Berlin Wall and with Eastern Europe becoming more um, unhappy behind the Iron Curtain, they could have done what they'd done throughout the 20th century and send in tanks. They had more than enough capability to do, to do so. Um, but so it wasn't their military power that was the pro that, that, that was the problem from their perspective. It, what it was is that they were naive in terms of the uh, the power and strength of the uh, of the Soviet state in terms of how re reliable it could continue as it currently was. And they thought that a little bit of reform would be enough to enable the system to continue, which was their intention. And of course, Gorbachev was the main head of that. Um, uh, but actually, a little bit of reform of a dictatorial system, it cannot countenance any liberalism, and thus the whole thing imploded. And so the, the values of Gorbachev, in a sense, which were still committed communist, were ones, I think, that were more sympathetic, at least, to the idea of reform, but he was naive. And it was that that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, as opposed to um, sort of just purely the economic factors and everything. So... Just to wrap up my sort of take on this, I think ultimately he is a complex figure, as all significant figures of history are. Historians will be debating this, I think, for decades to come. Ultimately, I think that in terms of us thinking long term about his influence, people will say that there was a basic humanity in Gorbachev, a warmth that helped to cool the Cold War that's tragically lacking among the leadership in modern Russia. 
And ultimately, for all of his imperfections, of which, as I say, there were many, we need more imperfect Gorbachevs to help bring this new Cold War to an end. Thanks very much for that, Francis. Roland, can I come to you? You've been reporting on Russia, speak Russian, you know, lots of Russians. What did Gorbachev uh, mean to, to Russia and to Russians? And then if we could talk a little bit about how he and Putin differ, what Putin changed from his system, that, that would be great. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of Russians and it depends who you speak. I mean, um, obviously, over the past several decades, kind of, you know, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, in a sense, have been rolled into one, one kind of figure who symbolized loss, decay, degradation, humiliation, lawlessness, because that whole period from 1985, when Gorbachev comes to power, through to the collapse in 91, and then through the early 90s, um, has, has kind of under Putin become synonymous with just just chaos and loss. And that's what Putin came in to sort out. And that's the kind of, you know, pe- people will talk about one or the other, um, kind of kind of in general terms, almost um, interchangeably. Um, I think I think it's definitely true to say that lots of people um, resent Gorbachev. Lots of Russians um, resent Gorbachev for his association. Yes, with the loss of the of the Soviet Union, um, especially for kind of you know old fashioned nationalists. Because let's not forget you know, the Soviet Union, especially from the point of view of kind of non Russian peoples within it, um, was in a sense just a continuation of of the Russian Empire, um, and so. And you can see that in what's happening in Ukraine now, Vladimir Putin trying to rectify what he thinks um, is the loss of of basic Russian lands. Um, So, yes, definitely that kind of resentment, that disappointment. People did suffer um, horrifically in that in that period. Um, And then but, you know, um, then 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 there are others who who have something different. So this is Alexei Navalny. who manages to get his lawyer to put out tweets for him from from prison? He's obviously um, in in solitary confinement right now. We're told. Um, he said he he learned about this on the prison radio in Russia this morning. Said you know ironic that um, this was the man who released the Soviet Union's last uh, political prisoners. Um, this is interesting because I think this chimes with a lot of people I know in Moscow. My attitude towards Gorbachev evolved from a savage irritation because he was standing in the way of the radical Democrats I adored to sad respect. When it turned out that those radical Democrats were mostly thieves and hypocrites, Gorbachev remained one of the very few who did not use power and opportunities for personal gain and enrichment. He stepped down peacefully and voluntarily, respecting the will of his constituents, and this alone is a great feat by the standards of the former Soviet Union. I'm sure that his life and history, which were pivotal in the events of the late 20th century, would be evaluated far more favourably by posterity than by contemporaries. And there is this... I think. I mean, I, I maybe I've just got. To, I just want to think the best of people. Um, but I, I do think there's a sense that there was a, there was a decency to Gorbachev, um, and where many people, you know, went off and enriched themselves um, at the expense of the public in after the fall of the Soviet Union, he didn't really go and do that. Um, and his great contribution, I think, is that he was a he was a man who stopped wars. You know, he, he brought the Cold War to a peaceful conclusion. He brought the war in Afghanistan to a conclusion. Um, and the great irony, I think, and this kind of segues into the second part of your question about the comparison between him and Putin. Um, you know, we, we now have a leader um, in, in the Kremlin who has made war a, a style of rule, um, almost. So that's, I know, 
Does that answer some of your question? I could go on more, actually. I've been thinking quite a lot about the, um, about the, the similarities between Putin and Gorbachev. Yeah, I definitely answered most of it, I think. Yeah, I'd just be very interested to know, because Putin's been in power now for quite a while, um, what was tr- Putin trying to change from from what he was what 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 Gorbachev and Yeltsin did, and how is um, I, I guess it's interesting for us because it, it helps us understand where Putin's um, uh, um, where where Putin wants to take Russia because he was taking it away from what was done before. I mean, you have to understand Putin. Putin's changed, right? So so when he came in. Um, he, he was offering a lot of things. The thing he was really offering was, look, I'm sober, I'm a manager, I'm going to restore just, just a sense of law and order and dignity to ordinary life. And people got behind that. And he was going to stop the chaos in Chechnya, which he did with absolute brutality. So that, that's his first war when he comes in. Um, and that is putting a stop. You know, the public narrative is putting a stop to the chaos that has, that has reigned in the country um, since uh, the fall of the Soviet Union a decade earlier. Um, but remember, Putin back then, he, he did say, there's this memorable quote from early Putin saying, um, no one without, uh, you'd have to be heartless um, not, to miss the, um, not to miss the Soviet Union, but you'd have to be brainless to want it back in, in the form that it was. So there was a general acceptance that the way the Soviet Union was when it collapsed, just it was not sustainable. Um, and I think that's moved on now. And now you, you, you have a Putin who sees... Um, the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's not just about the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right? Vladimir Putin is not a communist. He, he, was, he was never really a committed communist. When he came to power, there's a big debate about burying Lenin. Um, but it is the loss of Russia's historic hinterland. Right? I mean, it is, it, it is about the loss of the Russian Empire, and it's about restoration. Um, there is, there is this, um, this very nice little anecdote about how Vladimir Putin, when, when the Berlin Wall came down, he was in the KGB base in, in Dresden, in East Germany. He found himself facing down an angry German crowd of protesters outside. He rang the local Red Army base saying, look, I need some help. And the commander said, well, you know, I can't move without orders from Moscow and, and Moscow is silent. And th- this is an anecdote that's repeated again and again about kind of shaping Putin's worldview and his move to kind of respond to that trauma. Um, but, you know, there are, there are points of convergence with, with Gorbachev and Putin. So Gorbachev himself always insisted that he was betrayed by the West over NATO expansion. His, his account was always that I agreed to German unification um, and the fall of the wall and all of this because Western governments promised me NATO would not expand eastwards. The deal was, in his account, East Germany would join NATO because it was unifying with West Germany, which was already in NATO, but nothing else would happen. And, and he was consistent on insisting that. Western uh, officials dispute that account. But that's... He was singing from the same sheet um, as Putin on that, and he also sang from the same sheet on Putin with the with the 2014 annexation of Crimea. You know, he said, you know, "Crimea is Russian." Let anybody else um, say that. And that is two ways of looking at this. Um, I think if you sit in the Kremlin and your job is to run Russia or the Soviet Union, you see things in a similar way, and and you have similar preoccupations with security and foreign policy and so on. It's inevitable. Um, the other way of looking at it, and I think you'll get this from um, Baltic politicians who are talking today and from some Ukrainians, is that, well, he was just another Russian leader. No matter who sits in the Kremlin, they always look at us the same way. We're always subject and we're always, you know, there to be um, to be used, to be dominated, to be occupied by the Russians. Um, and I think there is probably there's an element of truth to that. Once you're in that 
that red walled fortress uh, on the banks of the Moscow River. And that's your job running this country. You're going to see things in a certain way. And you, you can see these um, these points of convergence, um, I think. But on the whole, I think very different people. I think Gorbachev, ultimately a peacemaker, ultimately someone who remembered the Second World War, um, lived through it as a teenager, never wanted to see that happen again. Um, and you have Vladimir Putin, a man who has refused to leave office, has turned back all of those liberalizing democratic reforms power is once again concentrated in one man in the Kremlin who is probably not going to leave office until he dies. Thanks very much for that, Roland. Um, Dan, can I come to you? You've been listening to all of this. What would you like to add or to, to add any nuance or, or new things? Yeah, I think um, both Roland and Francis have raised really important points. I think the key the key thing Roland said, and, and, and this I think is possibly missing slightly from what Francis said, is the idea of the Soviet Union is a continuation of, of the Russian Empire. Um, I think a lot of historians now, when they look at the collapse of the Soviet Union, don't see it as something unique, don't see it as kind of a special process. They see it as ultimately something that happened to all the other land-based European empires at the end of the uh, First World War with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, with the German Empire and so on, the Ottoman Empire. It was postponed in Russia by the arrival of the Bolsheviks, but but ultimately, um, and this is something that throughout the Cold War people really didn't understand Russia is not the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union is much bigger than that. Um, Russians only ever made up about 51% of the Soviet Union uh, population, um, and then about 20% were Ukrainians, and then you had various other um, ethnicities. So, so when Gorbachev came to power and he had these economic pressures on him, and he started to reform, one of the sort of the simpler reforms he made was to to democratize the uh, Soviet republics, to to create some level of, of, of elections. And, and what you then created was uh, an alternative power base. Um, I think one of the things, you know, particularly relevant today is is, is the, the important role that Ukraine played in the collapse of the Soviet Union, which then we can talk about later, set some very important context for 2014 and, and 2022. But under Khrushchev, um, under Andropov and others, the, the Ukrainians had, had been kind of a, their own elite. Um, they'd been uh, incorporated into um, the Moscow elite. They'd been allowed to kind of be the senior junior partners, if you like, uh, in the running of the Soviet Union. And, and Gorbachev didn't do that. Uh, he alienated a lot of the Ukrainian um, communist elites. But at the same time, by enabling these, uh, these democratic reforms that you had at, at, at the Republican level, uh, he created an alternative power base. And so when you had these reforms, this chaos, um, you had uh, sort of independence movements in the Baltics, you had Armenia and Azerbaijan kind of turning on each other. You also had these elites looking at Moscow and looking at these democratic power bases and thinking, which one which one will secure my future? Um, and after the failed coup in, in 1991, those final sort of four months of, of the Soviet Union, what really happened is that... Um, as republics and very specifically Ukraine, the Ukrainian elite realized that the future lay in Ukraine, in the Ukrainian people and not being part of the Soviet Union. And of course, once uh, Ukraine was pulled out, um, they had this referendum in, in 1991, overwhelming uh, majority in favor of independence. The whole thing starts to collapse. So once you take Ukraine away, the Russians don't really want to um, be part of the Soviet Union because they can be outvoted by the Central Asian states. 
I think there's something that's forgotten about Yeltsin is that, that at least initially he he did actually try to hold the Soviet Union together, sort of. There was this kind of Gorbachev proposed a union treaty and there was going to be a looser confederation. And and Yeltsin didn't necessarily see a problem with that. Maybe, you know, as Roland was saying, when you're when you're a Russian in, in the Kremlin. Um he actually, you know, didn't have a problem with that idea. And then when he tried to be sort of quite quite brusque about it, the uh, the leaders of the various republics turned on him and, and he very quickly changed his mind. We had this unusual situation where the the Russians within the Soviet Union, Russia had the economic power, it had the resources, the oil, the gas, the minerals, which is very unusual for for empires. Usually, you know, those kind of resources are, are scattered in the colonies, and, and the metropole is is um, sophisticated but not resource rich. Uh, in the Soviet Union, it was the other way around, and so Russia was kind of looking at this this Soviet Union that it would be in without Ukraine. Um, looking around and seeing that it would be sort of outvoted and outnumbered by Soviet states, the majority of which, the exception of Kazakhstan, uh, received heavy subsidies from Moscow and thought, well, no, thank you. I don't really want to be part of that. And then you're looking at sort of a strange confederation of, of um, Soviet states, uh, sorry, of Central Asian states, uh, plus Belarus and, and a few Caucasus nations potentially. And suddenly the Soviet Union is not really there anymore. So I think that's kind of the key, you know, two key points there. That one, Ukraine really, really was central, this this um, a driving force behind the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and that also, you know, this was the disintegration of a multi-ethnic empire that's sometimes forgotten. You know, it wasn't just about the collapse of communism. The Communist Party was kind of, well, the Communist Party was abolished several months before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And even then Gorbachev and a few others thought they could hold it together. They didn't necessarily think that the Communist Party and the Soviet Union were, were inextricably linked. That's why Gorbachev made himself uh, president. There hadn't been a president of the Soviet Union before. Um, he was just general secretary of the Communist Party, but he created this job for himself to try and have a power base outside of the Communist Party because there was this belief that, that one could carry on potentially without the other. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Roland. Um, what, looking forward, uh, what, what are the, the lessons of Gorbachev's life and work that, that we, we should note? Uh, Francis Sternley. Well, I think one of the lessons of Gorbachev is it shows that a system like the Soviet Union that had power controlled in one man, as one could say the modern Russian state has as well, is only ever as strong as that person. And uh, in Gorbachev's case, once he lost the will to do what former Soviet leaders would have done, which is sending in the tanks in in Berlin or or whatever other cities, uh, then the whole edifice really began crashing down. And I think a lesson for the West there is that it may well be that just like we had to wait 70 years, or one hopes it wouldn't be that long, but years to see regime change in Russia, a, a different kind of leader, as Margaret Thatcher famously said, someone that we can do business with in the West. Um, it, it, we may have to wait years for that. And we need to learn the virtues of patience, potentially, in order to, 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 to see the kind of adaptation and evolution in Russia um, that Gorbachev provided, albeit by accident. Of course, the concern in the short term is, is that, of course, research is being done about who would potentially, you know, if Putin were to to disappear from the scene tomorrow, who would succeed him. And the problem is, is that the apparatus that he has built is such that those who, are look, who would be likely to succeed him are arguably worse than him, or if that's possible, or at the very least are cut from the same mould, or cut from the same cloth, sorry, um, mixing up my metaphors. Um, 
Uh, and so that is something, no doubt, the West are also very sensitive to. There isn't a sort of Gorbachev on the horizon. One can point to somebody like Navalny, but I've said that he's, you know, imprisoned and, and he's not universally popular across Russia. And also on the matter of Ukraine, he is problematic, to say the least, given that he was in favour of the annexation of Crimea. So there's that's one issue. And of course, the other point on this is that, you know, yes, on the one hand, uh, Gorbachev was successful in doing something different in the Soviet Union, building something more modern, or at least as far as the Russian state was was concerned, in, albeit again by accident. Um, but look what happened afterwards. Russia, in effect, was so institutionally exposed, rotten, corrupt, whatever you want to say, um, that it meant that these oligarchs and then criminal organisations were able to assume that power and economic vacuum left behind. And we can all see the consequences of that in terms of the regime that Putin has created and the kleptocracy that he has fostered in the country. So the other lesson is, again, another more worrying one, which unfortunately is a trend in Russian history, is that the, the stumbling blocks to progress are institutional as opposed to about individual leaders. And so... I think the big question that the West has to be asking is how do you make those institutional, cultural changes to that country? Are we talking about it in that way? I'm not so sure. I do worry that some of the approaches that have been made since the invasion of Ukraine, for example, completely cutting off Russia culturally, moving out any Western influences, Western businesses, may have the opposite effect than intended, that you're stopping the bleeding in, in of, of, of certain Western ideas by completely cutting off, like, turning off the tap. It may well be that this has a detrimental effect. So a lot of problems, I think, are raised by Gorbachev, and none of them are necessarily particularly um, positive. Roland, can I ask you uh, quickly, what's the reaction been uh, in Russia? What have you seen? How, how are Russians uh, thinking of uh, their, their former, their former uh, leader? I mean, I, I should caveat that I'm not, I'm not in Russia now and, and my, my grasp of it is limited to a, a few things on the internet and, um, and the Kremlin website. Um, in Vladimir Putin took his time getting his, uh, his tribute off, um, but it's, it, it's up there. Um, you know, he was a politician and statesman who had a huge impact on the course of world history and one who strove to offer his own solutions to urgent problems. It's, it, it's respectful. It acknowledges um, the, the huge portent of the, of the task and the moment that Gorbachev found himself in. But it's, um, it, you know, it's not very detailed. I think he presents... He presents some issues for Russians. He's not an easily celebrated figure, I think, even before the war, um, even before Russia's current turn to kind of, you know, official lunatic warmongering Cold War twoism. Um, there was a lot of general public resentment about what happened, what, what perestroika means. Russians still talk about perestroika as, you know, you don't use that term in Russia as a, is an, in relation to an economic policy, you talk about an era. People talk, oh, remember during perestroika or perestroika era this, perestroika era music, so on. And it's a kind of, it's kind of a byword for this weird mixture of, yes, hope, change, um, but degradation, desperation, uh, confusion, uncertainty, um, loss, crisis of identity, all of this. Um, 
So he is not, you know, necessarily someone that most Russians remember as symbolizing good things um, and plenty. But I think there is a recognition, you know, even on the part of the Kremlin, that this is a guy who presided over a very, very key um, moment in history. And, and obviously a recognition on the parts of, you know, I think Navalny puts it very well. Um, you know, a man who acted very, very differently um, to the guy who is currently in power and who did create, I mean, the upshot was there was this brief moment, there, there was a chance for um, a new kind of Russia. He did try to liberalize. I mean, you know, the, the kind of, the, the level of kind of freedom of speech and chaos and everything else that just blossomed in that country in that time was, you know, really remarkable. I mean, there's, there's the famous thing that a lot of you know, kind of kind of friends of my generation tell me about that when they realised that okay, we're not living in the same country anymore. There was a there was a, a St. Petersburg radio show. Um, you couldn't do satire in the Soviet Union, basically. It was a St. Petersburg radio show, which had a long-winded interview, a bit like this podcast, with with an expert who very soberly, very carefully laid out all the reasons why Lenin had been a mushroom. Um, is one of, you can look it up on YouTube. It's one of the funniest things you'll ever see. Um, and people, you know, that, that, this kind of stuff had never, never been allowed in the Soviet Union. Suddenly it was everywhere. Um, and it unleashed um, some of the best things about Russia, I think, which, which is that creativity and that imagination um, uh, and all of that. Um, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily translate into, into material well-being. Um that's the the lesson that that Vladimir Putin and his friends took from this was that big mistakes were made. You can't liberalise. That's the end of the country. You need a strong hand. Um, and other people took that lesson, right? So um, the Chinese did not opt to go softly, softly. They did send the tanks in in Tiananmen Square. Um, and there'll be people in Beijing who are very firmly convinced. Well, if you look what happened to us and you look what happened to to Russia, um, we definitely did the right thing because um, you know. Our economic history um, has been much more successful than theirs. Thanks, Roland. Um, one more point then to make sure this isn't too long-winded. Um, one more point from uh, Dan Kapura. I, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about these sort of different narratives about the end of the Cold War and how Gorbachev didn't hadn't didn't necessarily think that Russia had lost it. That was something that came later. Would you talk us through that and, and what were what was the impact of that, of, of that on modern history? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's a key point. Francis kind of touched on it earlier when he was talking about the the prevailing narrative of U.S. victory, of, of economic dominance, of uh, pushing the Soviet Union to spend obscene amounts of money on weapons that it couldn't afford and, and ultimately didn't need. That's the sort of traditional narrative. But when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, that was when people decided it was the end of the Cold War. That's when there were sort of speeches and people stopped talking about the Cold War and Gorbachev declared its end and Bush, uh, George Bush Sr. declared its end. And the narrative then was not one of victory. It was one of, well, it's over now. Uh, let's move on to other things. Let's, um, you know, let's talk about the peace dividend and all this kind of stuff. And then in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. And at the same time, Bush was coming up into a re-election that turned out to be much tougher than he was expecting because of a, a recession in the United States and, and perhaps because of the skills of, of Bill Clinton. And you see this change in narrative that comes around where suddenly it's about victory. Uh, you see these presidential speeches by Bush Sr. saying, we won the Cold War, um, we defeated communism, we defeated the Soviet Union, uh, it's been wiped off the map. And 
people in Washington, advisors in Washington, people like um, Dick Cheney and General Wolfowitz came to believe that they had, you know, personally won this victory and wiped the United States' greatest rival off the map. It was gone. It just collapsed and crumbled. Uh, and then you have this whole idea of the unipolar world, um, and you have the idea that the United States can intervene anywhere um, without worrying about what Russia thinks. And I think that then fed into the paranoia that you see in um, post-Soviet Russia. You know, Roland was talking about uh, Gorbachev agreeing with um, with Putin's narrative of being betrayed on NATO, NATO expansion, and something that Yeltsin believed as well. And, you know, going back to, to 1990, 1991, um, Yeltsin was not keen on Crimea and Donbass and most of southern Ukraine becoming part of an independent Ukraine. They kind of used that against Ukraine. They used it in other republics as well. They played up the, the threat of civil war and the, and the threat of um, Russian minorities um, rising up. So the the idea that so the reality was that uh, you know as we were saying earlier what drove the collapse was these national uh, revivals these national forces be that in the Baltic be that in Ukraine be that to to an extent in the Caucasus although less so but this narrative of victory ultimately led um, both to this paranoia in 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 Russia and this and this sort of um, almost self fulfilling prophecy this belief that the United States had betrayed them then created this kind of second Cold War mentality and then in the United States led to basically learning completely the wrong lessons from the end of the Cold War, which actually is that, uh, you know, self-determination, um, the power of the people, if you want to to use that kind of slightly woolly term, is actually what brings down these, these dictatorships. Um, and I think that that kind of set us on the path that we're in today, um, whether that's kind of the United States going into Iraq and then diminishing its, its global stature or... Um, the belief in Moscow that that the United States is this conniving force when when the reality of what was actually happening in 1991 uh, was that George Bush Senior was working really hard to keep the Soviet Union together, with the exception of the Baltic states. He wanted the Soviet Union to stay together, and it was only really at the last minute when it was pretty obviously going to collapse that that he decided to stop doing that. Um, so you know this this difference between reality and and what people think happened has has set us on the course that we're on now. If I could just jump in there on one thing that Daniel was saying, I think it's absolutely fascinating hearing Daniel's perspective on this. I'm, I'm just very interested in, in this idea around the, the narrative that's obviously been very relevant in terms of the war in Ukraine, but certainly was, was true with the collapse of the Soviet Union as well, of, of what Daniel was talking about, about the sort of idea of being betrayed by NATO expansion. And I think it's actually, if we really dissect that phrase or that argument it sort of falls apart, really, because it reveals something of the dictatorial Soviet mindset, which is that they, just as the Soviet Union operated with all power centred in Moscow and any country that sought to do things differently was immensely, was to be challenged and to be suppressed if necessary. It seems the, sa- the same when we talk about this idea of NATO, NATO expansionism and seeing it as if America and the White House is controlling, or the West more broadly, is controlling and seeking to expand in an imperialist fashion across Europe. That is not the reality of what is taking place when it comes to NATO expansion. These are or for that matter, the European Union's expansion, which is that countries can choose to join and can seek to join, and then it can be accepted whether by the senior powers of, who are other members of, of that, those blocks, whether it's to accept other countries. It's democratic. It's a democratic process. It is not the same as somebody in, whether it be in Moscow or in, the, or in Washington, 
trying to orchestrate manners in a sort of puppeteer style, um, which is, which is, as I say, it, it seems to be the view that is so commonly articulated on this on this line of thinking. So um, I just wanted to sort of draw attention to that, really, that I think it is a revealing argument that has been put forward and one that speaks more about the Soviet mentality than to the reality of, of the modern world, I think. Just just very quickly on that, David, I think, no, I don't, I don't disagree with Francis at all there. And I think you see it, uh, you know, to the point I was making about people power, you saw it again and again in Ukraine in, in 2004 and again in 2014, you saw it in 2003 in Georgia. Um, you know, the people of these former Soviets Soviet republics want to be part of the West. They want to Westernize. They want to join the EU. They see NATO as as um, safe as safety against Moscow. I mean, a lot of Yeltsin's, Yeltsin's advisors in 1991 sort of thought it's fine. We'll let these um, these republics go, and in 20 years' time they'll come back to us because we will be an economic power, we'll be a military power again, and they'll want to be associated with us. And of course, it's the exact opposite, and it's the decision of of Ukraine to to choose the West to to the decision of the Ukrainian people to choose the West, to choose the EU, that drove Putin to to do what he did. Uh, but I don't think that that um, distracts from the point, which is that uh, this false narrative of how the, the Cold War ended has kind of taken over and, and really clouded a lot of judgment in Washington and in Moscow um, as to what really happened and, and the decisions that they then made in, in the succeeding decades. Well, I think we're starting to run out of time, unfortunately. Thank you very much, Roland, Francis and Daniel. Can I just get your, your final thoughts? Um, maybe sum up a few of the points we've been talking about and uh, answer the question, what should our listeners be thinking about um, as we go into the, the rest of the week? Well, I, I think I, I can't summarise everything that we've talked about in relation to Gorbachev, apart from just saying that a very complex figure, one that will need to be debated and will inevitably be debated for, for decades to come, and his shadow, I think, will loom large over the coming months uh, in relation to Ukraine. My final thought, actually, isn't so much of thinking ahead, but it does talk, I think, to a lot of the themes we've touched on today, which was a story that was largely ignored, really, over the weekend, but I thought was interesting, which is that the US is planning to appoint its first ambassador for the Arctic amid increased Russian military activity in the region. And... I don't know if it just seems a small, a small example of the manner in which we are seeing the whole world react to what's happened to Ukraine and potentially are seeing a forging of a of a new Cold War of sorts. Now, the question is, of course, whether Russia will be at the centre of that new Cold War or whether it will be something that will be much broader in terms of sort of democratic powers uh, and, and autocratic ones in the form of, 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 of China and Russia versus sort of the West as we understand it. And and I just think that, as we've commented on throughout the past few months, the world is evolving in a very interesting way as a consequence of what's happened uh, in in Ukraine. And and I think that ultimately the the Cold War that we thought was completely over is heating up again. And uh, in a fashion that could be far less comforting and predictable than the way in which we've spoken about the previous one until now. I guess I'll uh, I'll come in here then. Uh, yeah, I think um, you know, talking Francis talking about China's rise. I think um, you know, looking at Gorbachev and and the role of the Ukrainians. I think the the thing to sort of take away and and think about is that you really don't know what's coming next. You don't know where your allies are going to come from. You know, right until the last minute. 
Bush and the White House thought that the Soviet Union would, would survive and that it was worth propping up. I think you look at China today with its economic difficulties, its zero COVID policy, its its declining demography. Um, you know, it may it may stay immensely stable for decades to come. It may not, and uh, I think you just kind of have to have to be nimble and uh, and observant. I think I'd agree with both those points. Sorry, I was just trying to desperately think of something intelligent to say. Um, I think um, the thing that really gets me about about Gorbachev passing away, I suppose it's about it's about death in general. Really, it's this sense that you know the gears of history turn. Um, you know, the centuries roll on um, before you know it. Um, mortality creeps up on us all and so on. But I mean, you know, we're, we're deep in this confrontation now. It's a, it's a, we're in a horrible, horrible place. Russia is in a horrible, horrible place. The former Soviet Union, Ukraine's in a horrible place. Um, but it's not forever. Right? There will be people after Putin and there are there is more than one side um, to Russia. And it's not just, you know, Zeds on tanks and and war crimes in in Butcher and madness. There 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 there, there is a whole other side, um, which will raise its head again at some point. Um, and I do think it would be good for our, you know, the great and the good and and uh, our leaders to, to to think in the long term. Um, and to think about how, when when that opportunity eventually comes around again, um, to make peace, to end this this cold war, um, how it can be done in a way that that is going to last this time, and in a way that's going to secure those those wonderful good elements of Russia that I personally love so much um, against this darkness. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.